The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the editor of a newsletter. It's been around 19, since 1981. It's called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can learn more about that by calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or going to my website at miningstocks.com. Well, we want to thank each of you again for listening to our show. It's gratifying to know our numbers have been growing. The popularity of the show is on the rise I also want to thank our sponsors uh, for the first hour of this show for making this show financially possible. Those sponsors are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold Corp., Resource Consultants, Magellan Minerals, Metanor, uh, Timmons, and Riverside Resources. And I also want to thank Merrick's Gold, Inc. They are a new sponsor of this show starting this week. They, uh, it's a company that trades on the Toronto Exchange. The symbol is MXI. And they have a gold discovery in Mali, West Africa. We'll be telling you more about that company, uh, and we'll have their CEO on to talk to you about their prospects in the near future. I would also like to recommend uh, to listeners that you consider uh, Pat Gorman's services in, at Resource Consultants out of Tempe, Arizona. Pat Gorman and Resource Consultants are a sponsor to this show. Pat is a frequent guest on our show because he is very knowledgeable about the precious metals markets, how you can buy and sell 
silver products, and uh, that is something more and more people are looking to do these days as uh, confidence is, is very rapidly being lost in the, uh, in the fiat money system. You can contact resource consultants in Tempe, Arizona at 480-820-5877, 480-820-5877, or go to their website. It's called we or it's called buysilvernow.com, buysilvernow.com. You can learn more about uh, the services of, uh, of resource consultants. Well, I was a bit amused this morning when I heard Thomas Keene on Bloomberg Radio uh, ask one of his guests, where in the world can we make money in 2010? He noted that making money was pretty easy in 2009. Everything, everything went up pretty much. Um, and Thomas Keene's question was all the more amusing to me because right before he mentioned that or asked that question, he noted that gold was up 2% this day. The mainstream, I believe, just doesn't get it. They don't realize that gold is in a roaring bull market of a lifetime and that gold mining stocks are also one of the few places where you can make, I believe, where you can make lots of money. Not only have we done so in the past number of years, but I believe the coast is clear to continue doing very, very well in the gold mining sector. The mainstream doesn't understand that gold is replacing paper as money, whether that idea fits into their academic framework or not. Thomas Keene, for all of his academic excellence, can't get some of the, the most basic sensical facts that gold is money. And why is gold money? Well, Aristotle understood that and, and explained it many centuries ago. He noted that gold is durable. That's why we don't use wheat. It's divisible. That's why we don't use diamonds. It's convenient. That's why we don't use lead. It's constant, and that's why we don't use real estate. It has intrinsic value, and that's why we don't, or at least we shouldn't, use paper. And in fact, the reason that paper is going, I think, uh, is going to go by the way of, uh, of another currency that the U.S. dollar, as all paper currencies, fiat monies have in the past, have ultimately self-destructed. And so gold has risen over 80% vis-a-vis the Dow Jones Industrials going back to the peak of 2000. Gold is also rising dramatically against a basket of commodities. For example, since Lehman Brothers' decline, uh, bankruptcy in September of 2008, an ounce of gold will buy twice as much of the Rogers raw materials as it would have bought then. All of this makes for an amazing bull market, not only in gold, but for gold mining shares, because the price of gold in real terms that is, in terms of what an ounce of gold will buy, is on the rise. That means that gold mining profits are on the rise as well. And as gold mining profits rise, guess what? People invest in gold mining stocks and their shares go up. So mining in general, and especially gold mining, has, done, has been doing very well. And I believe, given my outlook on the economy and the view that we are in a deflationary depression, that that is going to continue because that is what's happened in the past. Uh, several times in the past. Well, so we've done very well over the years. We've uh, done well with our model portfolio. It's up 173% since January of 2000, and that compares to Abby Joseph Cohen's favorite investment, the S&P 500, which is down 27% since January of 2000. So we think that we're on to something good, and we think gold mining is the place to be. Uh, we have uh, we have uh, some companies to tell you about. We're, I'm going to just first of all tell you about uh, Riverside Resources. It's a company that I went to uh, visit their flagship property uh, last Saturday, actually, with Dr. John Mark Stoudy, and that was um, uh, down near uh, the corner of 
Arizona and the California border at the Sugarloaf Peak deposit. Riverside Resources is a sponsor of this show. They're selling uh, at about 60 cents today, I believe. There's only 21.9 million shares out, so it has a very small market cap. Uh, we think that Riverside uh, has great upside potential. It's employing uh, what is known as a prospector model. Uh, I've written an eight-and-a-half-page report on Riverside, which, is go- which has gone out to my subscribers this past weekend, explaining why I like this stock so much. And if you uh, want to subscribe to my newsletter, you certainly will be able to read this report and understand in more detail why I believe that Riverside offers great upside potential. Uh, it is, uh, although it does not yet have a 43101 compliant resource, it does have a historical resource of 1.2 million ounces on its Sugarloaf Peak project. It is a low-grade gold deposit for sure, but one that is not unlike several others that have been highly profitable not far away uh, in that same part of the world. And we think that it has an enormous exploration potential to become a multi-million ounce deposit. That remains to be seen whether it's commercially feasible or not, but if it is, we think this share price will go up very dramatically compared to where it is right now. And the company has a couple of other advanced stage gold targets in Mexico as well. So you might want to consider Riverside Resources. Again, John Mark Stoddy was a guest on our show not that long ago. Uh, So you can go back and listen to what John Mark had to say or subscribe to my newsletter to learn more about in detail why I think that the Sugarloaf Peak and other projects that uh, John Mark Stoddy's company, Riverside Resources, has could make this a big, big winner uh, if any one of those deposits turn out to be commercially viable. Well, another junior gold share uh, that I am very, very bullish on is Magellan Minerals. Uh, It trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol MNM. That's Mary Nancy Mary. Its pink sheet symbol is MAGNF. It's trading at about 61 cents the last time I looked today. It was trading at a high of about $1.20 in Canadian money in any event. Uh, But this company only has, if I'm correct, only about 6 million shares outstanding, which means it has a market capital of, of $4 $4 million, if that's correct. Uh, I am delighted to have the president of Magellan Minerals with me today, Alan Carter. Alan, are you there? Do we have Alan Carter on? Oh, Alan's not there. Okay. Well, um, uh, okay, so Alan's not there. Well, let me just say Magellan Minerals is a company that, uh, as I say, has a market cap of around $4 million. It has a project in Brazil, uh, and um, and we don't know where Alan is. I'm sorry. I was hoping that Alan could give us a little bit of a break uh, breakdown on what Magellan is up to. Well, in any event, Magellan Minerals does have this project in uh, several projects, grassroots projects in Brazil, but they are projects that are that are um, highly prospective. They're in a part of the country where a lot of high-grade soil samples actually. Uh, ore-grade soil samples over large areas have been encountered. And uh, without Alan here, I guess, um, let's see, do we have, is Alan Hello, Jay. Oh, hi, Alan. Good, you're there. I, I lost yeah, you for hi. a minute. I've, I've actually always been here. I've been listening to you, but I guess uh, um, the mic wasn't connected. Oh, okay. All right, well, in any event, glad to know you're there now. Uh, finally, I was stumbling through. I uh, was uh, sort of depending on you to tell me why, uh, why I liked your company so much, and I didn't have my notes with me, so I'm glad you're there to save my life now. Uh, okay. In, in any event, I understand you were just down uh, in Brazil visiting um, a project or two down there. Could you just tell our, our listeners a little bit about your company and why did you select Brazil, first of all? Um, sure, Jay. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Magellan is a company that was founded as a private company by myself and uh, a friend of mine called Dennis Moore. We founded it in 2005. Um, and the focus of the company is um, we're exploring for gold in uh, northern Brazil in an area called the Tapajós. Um, we took the company public in 2008. And um, uh, the reason, really, that we focused on this particular part of the world is, um, firstly, we like Brazil. Um, Brazil is, um, I think most of your listeners will know, is a country with um, uh, enormous potential. It's a very large uh, country. Um, it has uh, one of the world's largest economies. I think it's the world's 10th largest economy now. It's around about the same size in, in economic terms as, um, as Canada, but has a much larger population. It's a company that has a, uh, an extraordinary history in terms of the mining uh, side of things. It, uh, it currently hosts uh, one of the world's largest mining companies, which is uh, Valley, uh, which I, I believe is now the second largest mining company in global terms. Um, so it's a major producer of uh, things like bauxite, which is the raw material for aluminum, um, copper, um, iron ore, of course, one of the world's largest producers, and gold. This part of Brazil, where we're working, uh, was actually the site of the world's largest ever gold rush. And this is a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, the, the gold rush in northern Brazil uh, occurred between 1978 and 1995. So it was relatively short-lived. But during that period, there's an estimated 20 to 30 million ounces of gold that was mined uh, from the streams and rivers there. So all that gold, of course, or the vast bulk of that gold is um, alluvial gold. That is mm -hmm. to say it's gold that's been eroded um, over time um, from you know, hard rock deposits. And in a nutshell, um, what we're focused on doing is finding the source for all that gold. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a number of projects, as you're aware, and we've had some, quite a bit of drilling success in the last couple of years since we went public about almost uh, two years ago. And, um, you know, we're very, we're, we're very bullish on, uh, on our opportunities. We've got, some, uh, we've got a track record as a, as a management team, having discovered a deposit up there um, in the last few years called Token Tanzinho. That's something that we found um, that, uh, prior to forming Magellan, but that is the largest gold discovery in northern Brazil in the last 10 years or so. It's 2.3 million ounces. Um, that's not part of our company, but, um, you know, we have uh, been in this part of the world for some time, so we know our way around quite well. And because we founded the company back in 2005, you know, we were one of the early movers into the region, so we have a pretty very good land position. And I think um, as proof of that, um, uh, the main evidence of that is that uh, Newmont is a significant shareholder in our company, as is Kinross Gold. And I think both those companies will be familiar to your listeners. Oh, absolutely. And what sort of percentage of your shares are, do those two companies own? Well, they're relatively small, and, uh, and we've kept that on purpose. Um, it's not part of our business strategy to, uh, to allow a large company um, to, 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 control, to, to control us, but Newmont yeah. now owns about 4% of the company. I think Kinross is around about 2% of the company. Well, Alan, you had, I think, been looking at a possible acquisition of a small producing facility down in Brazil, and then you've decided, as I understand it, to not to acquire that asset after all. Could you talk about that, perhaps, for a minute? Yeah. In, in the, back in the middle of November, we announced that we were going to move forward and buy a 51% interest in a small operating gold mine there, which has a, an open pit on it. It's about 350 meters long in terms of an open pit. Um, the geology and the style of the mineralization there looked very exciting. Um, however, um, once we 
as part of our due diligence that we drilled some holes into the area and uh, we did quite a lot of channel sampling in the open pit. And despite the fact that there's a very large um, stockwork vein system there, that is to say many, many little veins uh, which are cutting an intrusive rock there, the rock is all altered. Um, when we got all the detailed sampling results back, it, um, there's only parts of that uh, quartz vein stockwork system that uh, carrying gold. So, you know, we would hope that the whole thing, uh, i.e. something that could be a couple of hundred meters wide and possibly up to a kilometer long, would be mineralized. That does not appear to be the case. So that, in a nutshell, shell is the reason that we've, uh, we've withdrawn from that particular opportunity. Um, I don't think that detracts from the current portfolio that we've got. I mean, we've got two advanced projects. Uh, one is called Coringa. And that is at scoping study stage. We hope to have a scoping study done by the end of March. So we're pretty close to having that done. We announced a, an initial resource on it of 370,000 ounces, a pretty high-grade material, around about 9 grams. Um, most of that is measured and indicated. Uh, the main vein system is about uh, 7 kilometers long and open at both ends. Mm. And um, it looks pretty exciting because we haven't drilled it deep. And so far, we've tested... Um, about 1.8 kilometers of the, actually there's 10 kilometers in total strike length there right now, and we think that could easily double. So um, we've tested only a very small part of that, less than 20%. And, and as I said, we're almost at 400,000 ounces right now. So we have another drill program starting on that um, mm -hmm. next week. Um, okay. And as I said, the scoping yep. study results should be out um, back in, uh, uh, at the end of March. And then the other project we've got, as, as you're aware, is a project called Kuyu Kuyu, um, where we, um, this was one of the largest areas where the alluvial miners were working. They mined 2 million ounces just from the streams in this particular area. Mm -hmm. um, we took 8,000 soil samples in the area, uh, Jay, and um, we got an extraordinarily large soil anomaly, uh, golden soil anomaly, very unusually large. In fact, it's 12 kilometers long. Um, and you can see that on our website with some of the maps. Uh, now, within that 12-kilometer-long anomaly, there are some higher points. There are five separate anomalies which have over 0.1 grams gold in soils and each one of those anomalies is uh, around about a kilometre or more across. So it's truly a very large spectacular gold in soil anomaly and um, we think that it has excellent potential to host multiple uh, ore bodies in fairly close proximity to each other, you know, within that 12 kilometre kind of length. And um, as evidence of that, we've drilled some very good holes. Um, this isn't an area that's been drilled in any detail previously. Um, the best hole that we've drilled so far is 220 metres at 2 grams. Um, mm. so, uh, and we've just released um, relatively recently uh, in another area, which is only 5 kilometres away, 17, uh, I think it was 17 metres at 13 grams. So the, the area has a very, very good potential. And um, we're, tr we're planning to start in March another drill programme. of uh, It'll be above 5,000 metres there, and that, that project's called Kuyu Kuyu. Mm -hmm. So um, we're pretty excited. Well, Alan, are both of your both of your projects that you just talked about are are we looking at surface deposits here? The higher grade one that you first talked about, the scoping study project. Yeah, well, they certainly extend from surface, uh, Jay. Um, Karinga, though, is a vein system, so the mineralization is relatively narrow. Um, you know, it it it, it um, it's anywhere from one to ten feet wide the the vein structure. So that we believe that would be an underground mine, mm -hmm. uh, but it has such good grade that it would support a um, an underground operation. In this part of the Brazil, given a $1,000 gold price, you need about four grams per tonne to, 
to pay off your capital costs and, and actually pay your operating costs. So that gives you some sort of guide. Now, we're dealing with something which is 9 grams, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. a diluted grade. So that takes into account when you come into a mining scenario, sure. you know, the mine pinches and swells, and, and that you'll have to mine... Um, because you're mining a constant width, you'll have to mine some waste rock as well. So the 9 grams is, is kind of a diluted grade. The, um, the, the indications we've got at Kuyu Kuyu and the drilling we've done, we're dealing with something different there. It, they are, there are larger volumes. It's stockwork style mineralization. So uh, it looks like they would be very much open pit type, uh, type scenarios. All right. Uh, it sounds like you, you're looking for uh, world-class deposits. It doesn't look like you're fooling around, especially with the uh, Kuyu Kuyu. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And like I said, we've got some experience having been involved and, and made a discovery up there in the past, of, uh, you know, which is now 2.3 million ounces. And um, I, think, um, I think your listeners will, will know that uh, Newmont and Kinross, while they, they invest in some companies, they very rarely invest in companies without a, a, an option on a project. Mm-hmm. So in our case, they just took straight investments in the company. Oh, so there's uh, no back-end new... rights or anything they can no. take away from you if you make a major discovery. Let me no. ask you, we're just about out of time, but let me ask you, um, the number of shares outstanding, did I have it right? I don't know if you heard my no. remarks. <laughs> You're out by an order of magnitude. We currently okay. have uh, 76 right. million shares out. We have How many? How many? 76. Okay, so I guess we'll have to go back to my source here. 76 million, and but 76 million at 60 cents, you're still looking at what a market cap of 40 some million dollars. Yeah, I think it's trading around about 69 cents today, so okay. it may be a little bit above that. And we've got 12 million dollars in cash too, so that's sufficient to fully fund our programs um, through for at least the next 24 months. So um, I think uh, it's going to be an exciting year for Magellan. Um, we've got, as I said, a lot of drilling planned and there'll be a constant stream of results. And I think uh, if your listeners look back through our uh, press releases over the last year or two, they'll, they'll find that we've drawn some very interesting, uh, some, we've got some very interesting drill results. Well, it certainly, uh, it certainly does look exciting. And as I, my introductory remarks today, I'm extremely bullish on gold and gold mining. Actually, uh, before you leave, Alan, I've got, I've got my partner Chen Lin with me. Chen, are you, are you here? Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, would you have you listened to Alan's uh, Alan's remarks, and would you have a question for him, possibly? Oh, not at this moment. I'm pretty okay. impressed with uh, your balance sheet and uh, your prospect. Okay. Well, I just uh, Chen will certainly be taking a look, Alan, and a partner of mine who takes a, a look at gold mining shares. He's extremely bullish on the shares. Well, Alan, we'll have you back sometime uh, after you have some more results to report. When do you expect you might have some results? Some drill results. Well, I think we'll start. We'll probably start getting results from Karinga J around about early April, would be my okay. guess. And then I would think that the results will keep flowing from Karinga through April, May, uh, April and May time. And the results I would stick. I would expect uh, Kuyu will flow May, June, July, and possibly even into August. Um, uh, and, the, and as uh, if I understand that Kuyu could really be the kind of deposit that you could pile up ounces relatively quickly, as it's a uh, a broad, you know, near-surface uh, target, right? Well, it's such an extraordinarily large uh, soil anomaly. Uh, okay. You know, I mean, soil anomalies, uh, you've seen many, many uh, uh, soil anomalies in your career, mm-hmm. and, and so have I. I. But I have never seen something that is actually quite this big. So, And uh, and I think that um, Newmont and Kinross also uh, believe that we, uh, we, we could be onto something there. And the scoping study, how soon again? Well, the scoping study on Karinga we expect to have at the end of March. We're, okay. um, we're in constant discussions with, uh, 
with our consultant group uh, based out of Denver. So um, that's, that'll be pretty exciting. And I think the, the resource, um, the small resource that we've got at Coringa so far, which is just under 400,000 ounces, it mm -hmm. will only grow. It, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that it will only continue to grow. Like and you'd need to build a mill there to get that going, or is there yeah, we'll other, other milling? We'll need to build a small, uh, build a small mill, it, but yeah. it will be a small mine in terms of the tons moved. Mm -hmm. sure. In terms of the ounces produced, it could be significant because sure. it really does have a very good grade. Very good. All right. Well, this is very exciting, Alan. Thanks. I'm, I'm sorry for the uh, for the problems we had initially, uh, and I'm also apologize to you and to my listeners for the uh, for the share, um, the incorrect information I gave on the shares. But in any event, uh, it still looks like a very very exciting prospect to me. Certainly one of the reasons it's a recommendation in my newsletter. Thank you, Alan, and uh, look forward to having you back sometime soon again. We've only got a few minutes to break, and I do have Chen Lin with me. Uh, Chen, um, you're down in Orlando vacationing with your family, but you had some pretty interesting um, ideas about the oil markets and, and some geopolitics uh, concerning China and Iran. Would you care to explain that to our listeners? Yes, um, I've been uh, checking with my sources about you know the Iran situation. As we know, that Russian already changed their stand. I, Russian was blocking the Iran sanction. Okay, now Russians has a deal with Obama. Basically, Obama withdraw the uh, mass missile defense system uh, from the Soviet bloc nation like uh, Poland, so that Russian will vote for the Iran Iran sanction. Okay, now the key is China. China is the only country that has a veto power that can vote down the, the Iran uh, sanction. And from my source, so people here, people say, you know, China probably will exercise the power, but all I heard is China probably will go along. Uh, China major reason is that Iran is an oil source from China, and oil can be found other place. So it's really for the economic reason. And also, China don't want to veto it to offend the Arabian nation, which has been Chinese friend for generations. So I think that's probably the ma another major concern. So basically, is China is looking for you know the the vote is up to to be bought. So there's a price attached to the vote, which is China going to lose its Iranian oil source, right? So if you pay China compensate that loss, and I believe China will vote for the. Uh, at least will not veto the Iranian sanction. So when that happens, right now there's a lot of spare capacity in the world about oil, uh, but Iran is the fourth largest producer, if I remember correctly. If that's been taken out of the market, uh, there's no spare capacity of oil left mm -hmm. in the world. So that's why I've been buying oil stock recently, uh, and you know uh, I've been uh, accumulating uh, more shares, including today. So um, I think you know oil probably will head higher. Um, you know, at, at, at those many people, you know, a lot of analysts believe it's when, you know it may be lower. But I think oil has actually could be firm this summer when the Iranian sanction is announced. Well, you, that's interesting because I remember a week or two back you and you talked about how China had worked a, a deal with Iraq to secure oil from Iraq. So maybe there's some. Some real finagling going on there between the major superpowers of the world to try to to try to ensure that uh, things go the, the way that uh, the United States would like it to go. I guess. In, in yeah, that's very likely. If Obama is serious about sanctioning Iran, mm -hmm. uh, this year is the year because uh, this year is us. worldwide has some oil capacity left, so they can sanction. You know, it, it's probably unthinkable in, in 2008. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, Chen. Well, thank you very much. We're just about. Uh, 
upon our break time. We're going to be back very soon with Brian Rich. He's of the Weiss Group uh, for some ideas on the currency markets. And if, Chen, if you're able to, you want to hang around and, and listen to Brian and perhaps some questions, you, we'd really like to have you. Can you stay with us? Okay, yeah. Um, okay, uh, folks, we're going to take a break now. We're going to a commercial break. And as I said, we'll have Brian Rich of the Weiss Group back. He's a currency expert. He tr- trades the currency markets. And we're going to look for his views on the dollar. Which way is the dollar going? Is the dollar really going to to crumble, as most gold bugs think? Or could we see some surprising strength in the, in the dollar as we move forward into 2010? We'll be right back with Brian Rich. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment rising to levels not seen since the Great Depression. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time noon pacific time on the voice america business channel have you been acquiring physical gold silver and coins are you receiving the best price and the best service you can why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country resource consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers several websites and countless stockbrokers and financial planners call them now and find out how they can help you 800-494-4149 or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. 
Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. It's a pleasure to welcome Brian Rich. Brian is an accomplished currency specialist with more than 12 years of experience in trading, research, and consulting in the global foreign exchange markets. He is president of Logic Fund Management. That's a currency management and consulting firm, and he also has served for several years in a management and consulting role for the Weiss Group, for which he frequently shares his views of the currency markets. And that's where I've learned to know Brian and really have appreciated his his views, which are, uh, as he says, not really in accordance with the Weiss House or the, the general thinking of the Weiss Group, but uh, you know that's what makes life interesting is to have people with different views. One of the things we do try to do on this show is to have diversity, even though we are a hard money orientated uh, show. We do believe in fiat. We do not believe in fiat currencies. We believe fiat currencies have caused us uh, a lot of difficulty, but nonetheless, that's what we have. And Brian is, as I say, an expert in the foreign currency markets, and so we're going to uh, welcome him to this show. Welcome. Really glad that you could be with us today, Brian. Hey, Jay. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, last September 12th, you wrote an article titled Strong Currencies Not Welcome. And you noted that various currencies were cheapening, uh, in a, they were being cheapened in an effort to gain a competitive advantage in exporting their products to the world. Uh, it seems to me that this was one of the dynamics that I read about in the Great Depression. There was this so called beggar thy neighbor currency, competitive currency devaluation. It didn't work then. Do you think it's working now? Um, well, you know, I, I think the, the currency issue within the, the, the scope of, of the global economy and the fragility of it at the moment, you know, some of these weaker economies that have, have built their models on exporting, uh, they're going to have a very, very difficult time um, in the face of, of strengthening currencies. And, and what we saw sort of through March uh, of '09 uh, up until late November uh, when the Dubai surprise uh, sort of was introduced to the market, those currencies were rapidly strengthening, um, which is you know, historically looking back, when economic times are tough, you like to have a weak currency uh, mm-hmm. because you like to be able to export your way out of it. Um, but that that was and I think remains uh, a bit of a challenge for those countries, especially in light of their, their competition with China, who's able to, uh, manufacture a weak currency and manufacture even more competitiveness in, in the wake of a weakening global economic environment. So that's why I was, you know, I wrote that piece on, um, you know, how unwelcome the the, the risk rally was uh, to these weaker countries, these more export centric countries uh, that really needed uh, to maintain a weak currency. Mm-hmm. Um, in the long run, does it work? Um, you know, it, it certainly. Uh, if, if you can allow these weaker countries to bounce back, um, 
perhaps at the cost of some of the bigger, stronger countries uh, to get back to a sustainable path, then yes, I think it does work. But um, you know, we'll we'll see how it plays out. Sure. Well, speaking of risk rallies, we've had quite a rally since the bottom of the let's say March or so, the March lows of last year. How much further is this thing going to run, or do you think it's basically run its course? Uh, well, I, you know, I I tend to think it's run its course. Um, you know, I think if you look from a bigger, uh, if you step back, sort of bigger picture, um, I, I think you can see this entire crisis unfolding uh, and, and having a, a longer window than what a lot of people are thinking. And uh, the IMF uh, has a study that sort of supports this too. When you look at global economic uh, recessions that share also major financial crisis, they have this synchronized um, damage uh, to the global economy, they tend to last longer, longer than typical recessions. And they t- typically run in the five-year range until you get back to that, um, you know, you're in that drawdown period for about five years until you get back to a prior peak in, economic, in the economic cycle. So with that said, you know, maybe we're two-thirds of the way through this, and that initial risk aversion phase uh, we saw last year retrace a bit, and uh, perhaps this is the new final leg of risk aversion, uh, which I've you know, recently written a piece about. But uh, a lot of the more recent evidence really starts to confirm that when you look at the uh, growing sovereign debt problems and how these dominoes have been lining up, starting with Dubai. Dubai was initially said, so it's contained, it's contained. Mm -hmm. Well, the next thing you know, uh, Greece comes under the microscope, Mm -hmm. and then Portugal, and then Ireland, and Spain, a triple-A Eurozone constituent. Um, and then, you know, we, we just learned that, that Dubai is only going to pay 60 cents on the dollar. Mm. So, you know, hardly contained. But, you know, the sovereign debt problems, uh, the, the, the recent uh, tightening up in China and the potential asset bubbles there, uh, maybe China isn't what uh, many thought they were. Maybe they weren't uh, the savior for the global economy, the new growth engine. You know, perhaps the $600 billion stimulus package rolled out last year uh, was bigger than what the economy could absorb, mm-hmm. and they couldn't put it to work. Mm-hmm. If we have asset bubbles over there, we have uh, a potential either slowing of China, which slows the global economy, which disappoints a lot of expectations, or maybe even worse, maybe a crisis there. So all of these things, uh, you know, and then you throw in the additional wrench of, the growing protectionism, because, you know, as, as the G20 has harped on, we can't reach global or sustainable uh, economic growth, uh, again, until the economies in general become more balanced, until the U.S. starts um, creating some more productive uh, capacity, until China starts uh, creating some more domestic-led uh, economic growth. Uh, and, you know, China seems to be fairly resistant resistant to that, at least in their currency policy. You know, mm-hmm. They want to continue to manage um, the competitiveness of their product on the global stage. That, that keeps um, economies unbalanced. So all of these things play into um, the argument that can be made that uh, we're now entering another leg of risk aversion where uh, return of capital uh, will be paramount uh, as, as opposed to seeking out better returns and seeking out better yields and taking more risk around the world. 
Mm-hmm. And in that case, I think the dollar uh, can do substantially better. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly most most people that I talk to on this show, most of the my gold bug friends are all inflationists who think that this sort of beggar-thy-neighbor currency devaluation where comp- countries uh, print more and more money to try to, you know, the try to drive down their currency value is is really inflationary. Do you I guess you don't necessarily buy that then. Well, I think you know I think we have a serious demand problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't really have inflation until you have money in people's hands and people are spending that money. Mm-hmm. You know, if there is no demand, if they're willing to if they even get the money, you know, assuming it ever gets out of uh the bank vaults, mm-hmm. um do they actually spend it? That's where inflation will come in. But um I think demand is the bigger issue right now, so I tend to lean toward uh, the potential um, more deflationary pain mm-hmm. uh, because I think there's, there are f- far greater risks than, than what the market has priced in right now. Mm-hmm. And if we do happen to have another uh, dip in, in the economy or more sluggish type of growth than people have expected um, and more pain and longer pain in terms of unemployment and um, you know some of the the major structural issues we have. It tends to rein in in risk, and, and people tend to become a little more gun shy uh, about putting money back to work mm-hmm. and spending money. Mm-hmm. It certainly so, is the yeah. certainly is the psychology now, isn't it? We've we've seen a huge amount of money pumped into the banking system, and it's not getting lent out. It sounds very much like what I've read about in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, the U.S. consumer, of course, had been the engine to the world's economy for many, many years. And I can remember, you know, how many times have we said, oh, the consumer is going to be dead in the water very soon, and he'd come back, bouncing right back, and there'd be more credit lines and an expansion of the credit facilities for for individuals. And, of course, we had the, the housing debacle, the the easy money Greenspan years when money was pumped in, we kept interest rates extremely low by pumping huge amounts of money into the banking system, and we just kept we just kept things going that way through through expanded credit. I take it you believe that's over with. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've got to think those days are over, and you know we're starting to see that now with all the scrutiny surrounding the fiscal deficits, where it's looking more and more likely that there's a period of 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 pain and austerity ahead. You know, how long it lasts, maybe a couple of years, maybe longer. Uh but if you if you think that period has to end uh in in terms of getting back to some form of sustainable growth and I think that's become the, the consensus view, then there has to be this retrenchment that takes place. Um and, and I see a hard time, you know, justifying taking a lot of risk in that environment because uh, in a period where the really weak don't continue to get uh, that injection uh, to keep them going, uh, there can be a lot of surprise, a lot of surprises, you know, some, some shakeout. Yeah. And, and you don't want to have money at risk in emerging market economies, in my opinion, in that type of environment. Where do you want to put your money then right now? Yeah, right. I mean, I... I I'm, I mean, treasuries I give you the nothing. The best alternative is, is, is in U.S. dollars. The treasuries give you nothing, though. But yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I don't think it's a time where you're seeking, you're, where you're, you're, you're fishing out best return. Mm-hmm. I think you're it's looking time, for risk of capital. Yeah, because I think, I think the risk profile is just lopsided there. So it's, you know, when it, you want to keep what you have and uh, 
be ready when when things the evidence starts to to weigh on the side of of a more sustainable path of growth. That's why I think you know I think the dollar does better, and I think you don't want to be obviously you know twelve not even twelve months ago six months ago. Um, you know, a lot of people were arguing that the euro was going to take over as the world reserve currency. Mm-hmm. Now it yeah. looks like it may not exist <laughs> in the future. Yeah, I mean, I think so, you, on uh, in January 2nd, you wrote a, an article titled, Will the Euro Become the Most Hated Currency for 2010? Um, so is that coming true? It almost seems like um, you knew something then, Brian. Yeah, you were... I mean, I I think... The, the, the problem with last year in that you know March to November rally is a lot of people forgot the underlying problems in the global economy and the problems in Europe haven't changed they just got forgotten about you know mm-hmm. the, the market focus shifted and all of the scrutiny was squarely on the U.S. and everyone got a free pass for nine months mm-hmm. and you know my my view was that when when this the spotlight comes off of the U.S. Um, you know, the the global investors will start to see how ugly the rest of the world looks, mm-hmm. and in that case, you know, perception and and market focus can can be a huge determinant in in how markets perform. And and right now, the spotlight has moved off of the U.S. and and uh, it's squarely on Europe right now. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw uh, the op-ed piece this morning in, in the FT. Um, from Icing, the uh, former uh, ECB member. But no, I didn't. No. What? He he made a a, a pretty uh, good argument against um, any bailouts, mm-hmm. and uh, he he certainly um, was concerned about the future of the euro and the viability of the euro because mm-hmm. uh, you know all of the structural problems have have uh, have come home to roost now. Mm-hmm. So he was suggesting if they didn't bail out, it would have a better chance of surviving. Or, yeah, that's that's exactly what he was saying. Yeah, sure. Once sure. you once you bail out uh, a weak country, uh, then you have no excuse not to bail out your Ireland's when they come knocking, your Portugal's, your Spain's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and at the same time, uh, you're threatening the sovereignty uh, of these countries. And you know, it, it brings into question what is the new structure going to look like? Is is, mm-hmm. is Europe going to have a brand? Does Europe have to have a new structure from that point forward? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it just creates far, far more uncertainty. So, moral, you know, moral if, hazard. if you're looking at, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I would say moral hazard. The, the the idea of moral hazard. No, exactly right. Yeah. It applies. Well, doesn't that also apply, perhaps, to the United States? I mean, we've got California, which is one of the largest, one of the largest economies in the world, um, in in dire straits as well. We don't talk about it much here in this in the U.S. But what about what about our own mess in the U.S.? Yeah, there, there's no question. I mean, there, this the U.S. has its problems, but you know, on a relative basis, uh, and that's how I, I, I view currencies. You can only view a, a currency value relative to another currency. So um, sometimes uh, you want to be invested in the least ugly, and I think the dollar represents that for a number of reasons. But uh, you know, when you're comparing the U.S. and some of the problems we have here and the eurozone. There's just a significant structural difference in that you can't transfer taxpayer money from Germany to bail out another country. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. And in the U.S., obviously, you can't. You know? Obviously, they are. And Federal probably a lot more of that coming our way. So what does that mean for the United States? I mean, are we looking at a period of time of lackluster or no growth for many years to come, Brian, do you think? 
taxes, high um, taxes to redistribute. Yeah, I mean, I'm, we're I'm looking no at, economist, at but reducing it just seems our like consumption. That period of austerity has to come. Yeah, you have to have higher taxes. You have to retrench. You have to, you know, um, go through this period of, of pain and cleansing to get back to, uh, you know, an economy that's more robust and, and less reliant on um, just consuming, 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 and having it financed uh, from those that you're consuming from. And we're going to have to go back to work, I suppose, and start producing things that the rest of the world wants again, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's inevitable. Not just movies and porno flicks, perhaps something <laughs> more value. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, we, we know uh, after the Lehman Brothers collapse, we saw um, the dollar get quite strong. Were you positioned in the right direction for that? Um, the the Lehman collapse. Yeah, in 2008, uh, September 2008, we saw after that, we saw the dollar uh, get quite strong. And, and Bob Hoy of Vancouver, who's been on this show a couple of times, uh, has, has talked about, he's gone back and looked at major credit contractions over the last 300 years, I believe he's looked at, and he said in each and every case, the first four of those were U.K.-centric, and the last two, this one and the one before, U.S.-centric. And he noted that in each and every case, the senior currency is the strongest currency because you have what he describes as a major short covering because when the loans get repaid, people have to cover their short, which in essence, when you take a loan out, I guess you're sort of shorting the currency. You're borrowing the currency, selling it for something in exchange, and when that trade reverses, then you have this huge pent-up demand for the senior currency. Does that make sense to you? Uh, that that makes perfect sense. You know, I'd love to uh, read some of his stuff. Actually, that looks that sounds quite interesting. I'll be happy. But to I, you know, I think to... I think the initial reaction definitely uh, took some market participants by surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that it was so that there was such a a high highly correlated trade there, where basically everything got sold and the dollar rallied and Treasuries rallied, and then conversely, uh, when the switch turned. It maintained that that really tight correlation, and that everything else recovered, and the dollar sold off, and, and, and Treasuries have sort of come off a, a bit, but have have I think uh, managed fairly well throughout, uh, especially a lot of the um, scrutiny last year surrounding policies, U.S. policies, and the dollar. But um, yeah, I, I think that took people, some people, by surprise. Um, but I think now it's it's fairly clear, and 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 once you uh, look back a bit and see the dynamics of the way the world was positioned at that time, and so aggressively embracing risk, uh, especially through the carry trade, then you know it was inevitable that when uh, liquidity um, just evaporated. And a lot of the, the financial system came under major strain. A lot of the major hedge funds, um, a lot of their risk uh, was reined in that this major deleveraging was going to take place. And when that happened, uh, you know, money was just extracted from around the world and, and came back into the dollar. Okay, so you see perhaps two-thirds of this move. I guess maybe the move we're talking about since, the, what, the top of 2007 or more or less is over, and that we still have another leg down. Is that your view? That's my view. That's mm-hmm. my view. You know, I, I don't know how deep, and in my, one of my recent pieces, I, I used uh, the, the U.S. stock market, the S&P 500, as, as this, this global risk proxy 
not sure how deep this move might rep- be represented in stocks, but I think um, if you if you look at the move in the dollar, um, we could have a, a pretty long-term entrenched uh, upward trend in the dollar. Uh, you, you, we had the this risk aversion bid in the dollar as all the money came back to the core of of, of the world, and we saw roughly 20 25 percent uh, rally in the dollar. Um, and then we saw the 09 pullback, mm-hmm. uh, and that was around 15, 16%. Now I think we're on to uh, another leg higher in the dollar. And as we were discussing before, um, if, if you look at the, the longer-term cycles in the dollar, uh, going back to the, the failure of the Bretton Woods system, so... Mm-hmm. All the way uh, back to 1971, you mean? 70, 71, right. Uh-huh. You can see some, some pretty distinct... Uh, uh, cycles in the dollar, and they're roughly seven years. Oh, interesting. Um, so, if you if you look at the latest uh, bear trend in the dollar, uh, it's quite possible that that ended uh, in the bottom of the dollar index, which was uh, my mind is escaping me now, but I believe it was um, 2007, mm-hmm. uh, middle 2007. So we could be, uh, you know, a year and a half into the next bull market cycle in the dollar, uh, based on those cycles. Very interesting. I mean, that would be exactly the opposite of what most people are looking for, but that's usually the way the markets, the markets turn at those points when people are, are on, the, on the wrong side of the boat, so to speak. Right. Yeah, and you have to consider, you know, based on the evidence that's, that we're seeing now and uh, the fact that, that, that the world still is a, a fragile place, what are the better alternatives? You know, in, in terms of currency, I think you can de- definitely make a good argument for for hard assets, for hard currencies, but in terms of paper currencies relative to one another, what are the better alternatives than the dollar if you think uh, that um, risk appetite will will be reined in and that we're in for a bit more pain um, as a global economy? Well, very interesting. I'm glad uh, you said that. If I understand what you were saying, you're suggesting then um, that commodities might not be all that bad, but probably won't do well against the dollar. Is that is that? Am I paraphrasing you correctly? Well, I, I think you could you could see. You know, I don't know if you recall back in that in, initial run in risk aversion, gold and the dollar were moving in the same direction, mm-hmm. and I think we could see something you know a similar pattern. Um, how long it lasts, I don't know. But you know, I think if 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 you if if the market focus continues to to be on the debt and and, and the, the the deficit situation um, in major economies around the world, and if you think that emerging market economies need the major economies in the world um, to 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 achieve robust growth, that means economic growth will probably languish, so it'll be a bit sluggish. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if the focus is still on uh, debt situation and, and deficits, gold probably does well. And I think, you know, the dollar does well by default. So we could see the, that strong correlation come back, uh, as we saw in that risk aversion run, where gold goes higher and the dollar goes higher. So let me put um, you on again, the spot, gold Ryan. Is, gold is uh, not my expertise whatsoever, so... Okay, well, let me put you on I'll the spot, to you if I might, anyway. So do you see uh, do you see that do you see the, the the gold possibly rising against the dollar or the dollar rising against gold and then gold doing better than some of the other currencies? Well, I, I, hmm, 
that's that's a tough one. You know, okay. In terms of you don't have to answer that. I know gold isn't really your area, but uh, the reason I ask is that we had Bob Prechter on this show, and Robert Prechter is probably the biggest bear that that anybody knows. He's talking about a 600 Dow or something like that. He's talking about gold prices plummeting, but relative to the dollar, but he's talking about gold being stronger compared to almost everything else other than the dollar. So I just, okay. just I mean that that's essentially the same argument, isn't it? It's it's gold outpacing the dollar. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of uh, uh, relative values of currencies, the dollar outperforming as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, uh, so gold in dollar terms moving higher, uh, but gold relative to the euro, relative to the yen, relative to the pound moving moving higher as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I could certainly see this would be a big advantage if the dollar gets stronger, Brian, I think for most Americans because we earn our salaries in dollars. I want to thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today. Could you tell our listeners where people can learn more about your work? Uh, sure, moneyandmarkets.com. Uh, I write a weekly piece there. It's a great place to go. We have it, a uh, it uh, a free e-letter uh, daily there. It is a great place, Brian, and that's where I've learned to know about your work. Thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners today. And I hope we Thank can you, have Jay. you again sometime, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Folks, we're going to be right back with Suzanne Zentner. She's going to provide, actually, I'm sorry, we're going to have Dr. Robert McHugh on next, and he's going to tell us uh, what his views are now with respect to the Elliott Wave cycle and uh, the dreaded sea wave down. We'll be right back with, with, uh, with Dr. McHugh. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. 
we hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment rising to levels not seen since the Great Depression. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show with your coach, Rick Corrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Corrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank you for listening to this show, and I also want to thank our sponsors for this second hour of our show, because without them, it would not be financially possible to bring you the wealth of information that we have from folks like Brian Rich, who you just heard, uh, our next guest, Dr. Robert McHugh, and later in this hour, Dr. Suzanne Zentner. So let me say a big thanks again to our, uh, to our sponsors, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Resource Consultants, Western Pacific Resources, Pediment Gold, Silvercrest Mines, Sand Gold, and Hawthorne, Hawthorne Gold as well. Uh, I am pleased to have Dr. Robert McHugh back with us again. He is an ex-banker and a bank portfolio manager who now writes a, an excellent newsletter using Elliott Wave Analysis and a lot of other, almost every other technical indicator in the book, I think. 
he uses uh, to provide an, an enormous amount of information every day to his subscribers. I don't know of anybody who works any harder than Dr. McHugh, and his excellent newsletter can be found at technicalindicatorindex.com. That's technicalindicatorindex.com. Welcome, Robert, back to our show. Hi, Jay. How are you? I'm terrific, and how are you? You've climbed, have you pulled your way out of that snowstorm down there in Philadelphia? Yeah, we're digging out. We, uh, we had back-to-back uh, two-footers over the last week, so we're, we're <laughs> glad it's over, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. You know, I left my wife here in New York. I went to, to Arizona and enjoyed the nice, the nice weather out there, and I was afraid. But thankfully, the first snowstorm missed New York, and you guys got it pretty hard, but we didn't get it. And By the time I came home, I, I got to do my, sh- my snow shoveling here in New York. <laughs> So anyway, uh, for most people who may not be familiar with your work, could you tell them what tools you use to forecast the equity markets and, and the various other markets that you look at? Could you just explain just very briefly what those tools are? Okay, well, we do technical analysis, which essentially is a science that says the markets um, uh, will communicate to us, they have a language, they will communicate to us where they are headed next. And because uh, the markets are the total accumulative, uh, accumulation of all knowledge of all people, on Earth, and every time somebody uh, makes a, a purchase or a sale in the market, they're making a prediction about the future. Uh, when you bring this all together, there are patterns that uh, pop up that have been uh, uh, studied and documented, and correlations are very high with future prediction, future price action. So we made a science of this, and we uh, we use uh, uh, picture patterns, uh, which uh, we have uh, wedges and uh, head and shoulders and things like that. There are simple trend channels and trend lines. There are, is the Elliott Wave analysis. Um, there's a lot of cycle work where, although history doesn't repeat itself, it certainly rhymes, and, uh, and pr- patterns uh, develop that you can, can rely upon. So um, we, we look at uh, advances and decliners and um, breadth and moving averages and volume, and we have our own uh, proprietary indicators of uh, supply and demand momentum that are pretty good at predicting uh, where prices are headed next as well. You and Robert Prechter, whom we've had on this show, have both warned us of a grand super cycle and that we are in the down phase of that super cycle now. Could you explain what is a grand super cycle and what does it mean for for investors, for people uh, living in 2010? Well, um, throughout the history of, of mankind, actually, but uh, as far as markets... Uh, uh, throughout the history of markets, uh, prices have moved in patterns. Essentially, this is oversimplifying, but when they, uh, when they move impulsively up or down, they move in five waves, and when they correct those moves uh, but stay within that primary trend, they usually move in something similar to a three-wave pattern. And uh, so uh, Bob Prechter's uh, done an awful lot of origination work uh, in this area, and uh, what you can do is by mapping out uh, and labeling uh, each of the waves over time, you can get a sense for whether we're in a, uh, an impulsive wave up or down and whether or not we're headed into a corrective wave up or down. And if you know that there's going to be five waves in a primary trend and you just finished one primary wave up and you know you're in a corrective down, that tells you that you can rely pretty heavily on the fact that uh, the next move will be up and it will be up sharply. That's just an example. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what we do is we made a science about this, and we, and we plot every single uh, day uh, all the different moves in the markets, and both small-scale 
which are short-term time periods, uh, intraday, daily, and this kind of thing, uh, versus even weekly, monthly, uh, yearly, and decades, and centuries. You can go on out and come up with these repeating patterns uh, that far back. So we're talking about a grand super cycle, though, now. Is this a corrective cycle, then? Yeah, this is a grand super cycle corrective wave four. Uh, it, because it's grand super cycle, it takes uh, it, it's a it's a cycle that's been going on for centuries. Hmm. It's massive, and uh, there's you can label the top of grand super cycle wave three at the January 2000 top, or you could legitimately label it at the top of uh, the October 2007 top. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the January 2000 top is the inflation-adjusted high in the industrials, and the October 07 top is the nominal high. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been using the October 07 nominal high to label where Grand Super Cycle 3 ended and 4 began, and that's about when this uh, horrible recession bear market started. Uh, but you can, there's a legitimate way to count it back as far as 2000. And in either case, no matter how you label it, um, the wave pattern suggests that a massive uh, decline is due next. Um, we have had what I've labeled super cycle wave A down, which bottomed in March of 2009, and I think we are finishing or have finished uh, the corrective uh, uh, super cycle wave B up. Grand super cycle 4 should be an A down, B up, C down move. Like I said, A is down, A down is finished, B up either finished or finishing now, and then Grand Super Cycle C down is next, and that could take prices of the industrials down substantially. Uh, There are picture patterns that support this Elliott Wave count with massive head and shoulders top patterns, which are bearish patterns, that appear appear in over a half a dozen major international markets all Mm. around the world, including U.S. markets. And the downside target on those patterns is down, like you mentioned, Bob Prechter's goal uh, target is, uh, below 1,000 in Mm -hmm. industrials. Yes, and we've had Ian Gordon on our show, and he's looking at 1,000 on the Dow. Bob Prechter is fairly bearish on gold in nominal terms, although not in real terms necessarily, as I mentioned. uh, I was surprised at his bullishness, in a sense, relative to almost everything except the paper currency. I guess you don't share that view necessarily. What I try to do is analyze do- the dollar independently of gold, um, and there are massive bearish uh, patterns in the dollar that suggest the dollar is going to drop substantially. Uh, I don't know if Bob's work includes uh, picture patterns, but there's a massive head and shoulders pattern from 1990 that's finished, that's confirmed. Uh, with a downside target of 40 in the dollar, right now it's, uh, you know, it's, it's in the 80 area. So uh, we're looking at at least a 50% devaluation of the dollar. However, our view of gold is that it's, we're very bullish on gold in terms of the dollar, but also in terms of other currencies. Gold is, uh, is uh, in an, a primary uh, bullish trend, and uh, regardless of what the dollar does, gold should uh, rise dramatically over the course of the next decade. Oh, I'm uh, sorry that we don't have Brian Rich on with us yet still because he's more of a dollar bull, and it would have been interesting to have the two of you trade uh, trade views on this. Um, uh, but I guess, uh, you know, that's what makes markets. But So you're saying you're looking at a, at a target of 40 on the index, and, I mean, that's half of its current value, 
relative to other currencies. Yeah, and again, that's based upon a, uh, a head and shoulders top pattern that's as textbook perfect as you'll ever see. It started in 1990, uh, 20 years ago, and it's complete. And it's confirmed, which means confirmation means there's been a violation of its neckline, which means the probability of its downside target has increased dramatically. And that downside target is measured by the height of the head of the pattern to the neckline, and then you subtract that distance from the neckline gives you your downside target. So just pure technical analysis mm-hmm. has a bearish target for the dollar of 40, and that could be hit any time over the next three to five years. Uh, there's no immediacy uh, to that target because this is a 20-year pattern. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I know about your work, uh, Bob, is that, is that you look at a lot of different, a lot of different um, tools. You use a lot of different tools. And um, so you're, but you're pretty certain about this, this dollar demise. Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, patterns can fail, exceptions occur, anomalies happen, but the probabilities are, are, uh, are strong mm-hmm. with the pattern we're looking at, this 20-year pattern in the dollar. Mm-hmm. The, the probability of this thing is, is probably 80% based on the history of, this, of, of similar patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you look at all the money that's being, if you will go to the fundamental side of the equation, forget about technicals. Sure. If you look at all the money that's being printed and printed and printed and spent and spent and spent, mm-hmm. the borrowing that's going on in this country, the federal deficit, uh, you know, the import-export deficit, and so on, you have to see the sense, the logic of a devaluating, devaluing dollar. And then if you couple with it the scenario where what if stock, the stock market drops substantially, as we expect it to, well, the cure in the minds of, of the government will be to print more money and try to get it into some phase of the economy. Mm-hmm. And by, so their attempt to cure the, the stock market, coming stock market problem, will be to print more money, because that's what they've been doing. Yeah. have seen it over the last uh, decade. Uh, and, and what that does is it means you have more dollars being printed out of thin air, nothing behind them except the full faith and credit of the, of the United States and uh, the military power of our country. And at some point, they've printed too much, and, uh, and then the, the value actually drops in comparison with a, with a basket of other trade-weighted currencies. So does that, uh, does that suggest, then, that you lean towards the inflation view or the resolution of this, of this uh, massive problem? We're going to have kind of, I think, a, a bizarre scenario where you could have deflation and at the same time, inflation. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see asset deflation uh, through the market drop. If the markets drop, stock market, uh, if they decline in value, you you get depreciation, devaluation. Uh, You know, if you you see uh, real estate prices dropping, you know, there's a a, a devaluation going on there. Mm -hmm. However, uh, deflation, however, um, the result will be to go print more money, which will be inflationary as far as monetary uh, supply goes, as far as dollars go, as far as purchasing power of the dollar goes. That will be inflationary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, more, more dollars will provide, uh, will purchase less in value uh, because there's just going to be too many of them. And you have the competition of foreign currencies. We're not in a vacuum where it's just you know, United States dollars buying United States goods. And so I think what you end up with is kind of the worst of all worlds. 
Well, you've mentioned uh, repeatedly that uh, we had a chance to fix things if the U.S. had rolled back taxes for two or three years or so, put money in the hands of people, people who need to buy shoes for their kids and pay their mortgages and, and keep things alive. And you would have had a trickle up a sort of a scenario where, you know, companies would have sold more cars, more, more things would have been, you would have stimulated the economy from the bottom up instead of giving it all to Goldman Sachs. Basically, we're giving it all to Goldman Sachs, and those, that money seems to me as though it's being recycled into, oh, through hedge funds and the like into the commodity markets, and we're seeing, from what I'm hearing, a lot of, you know, there's not that much demand pulling a lot of these commodities off the market, that is a lot of speculation going into those, to those commodities, maybe doing what you're suggesting would be done in that people are trying to protect their purchasing power, realizing that the money supply is growing very dramatically. Is that something you think may be happening? Yeah, I do, Jay. I think you've uh, uh, presented that very clearly, and I think that's exactly what's going on. So you don't, so you don't think we're going to pull ourselves out of this depression as long as, as long as the money keeps being recycled to the, to the ruling elite, the, to the wealthy class? That's right, because the consumer in a capitalist economy has been 70% of gross domestic product. Um, consumer or the household is being ignored by all, um, I call them, central planner solutions. Uh, there was a, a key paradigm shift in the way our economy was managed uh, or tweaked by or governed, so to speak, uh, about a decade ago. About a decade ago, all of a sudden, the economy was equated with Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Wall Street was doing fine, then the consensus of the master planners was, that the economy is fine. Mm-hmm. There's a disconnect between Wall Street and the consumer or the household, and there is a dis- there is a disconnect between our government and the consumer and the household. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, for a strong economy, the consumer and the household have to be doing well. They have to be prospering. They have to have uh, their debts paid off. They have to be paying their debts on time. They have to have uh, income. They have to have money, cash, liquidity. Mm-hmm and access to more in credit markets uh, or through income and, and, and so on. And, uh, and then they will spend. And as they spend, they create, uh, like you said, demand for goods and services by the small businesses and large businesses, and it trickles, the benefits trickle up. Mm-hmm. What has happened uh, over the last decade is the uh, American household's balance sheet has been literally destroyed, mm-hmm. uh, except for those very few people who have no debt and uh, don't need a job because they have so much money they don't need a job, everybody else is in, is in hot water here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they either uh, have too much debt and assets behind that debt that, don't, uh, that are insufficient to pay that debt off. They're losing their job or at risk of losing their job or have had salary cutbacks or hour cutbacks or, or um, you know, th- there's no prospect for, for economic growth, uh, salary growth. And they are, they are struggling. They're in trouble. And rather than taking a couple trillion dollars and, and rebating that money through, the, through tax rebates or, and cutting drastically income taxes, which would have had the broadest impact across, across the economy, the farthest reaches, where every single household in America would have benefited. And in my plan, I would have had a minimum payment regardless of someone's income because we wanted to be compassionate and, and, again, hit people that are too poor to have even had an income, uh, get, have a rebate go to them, too. Mm-hmm. And then all that money, would have people could have paid off their debts, mm-hmm. and bad debts, 
would have become good debts, credit ratings would have improved, and the money would have been repaid to banks, and loans that banks now classify as bad loans would have been good loans, classified as good loans, and their, their financial struggles would have improved, and their capital-to-asset ratio, risk-based capital-to-asset ratios would have improved, and that would have allowed them to do more lending, and, and they wouldn't have needed government bailouts and all this kind of thing. Right. And it just trickles all the way up, and eventually it lands at Wall Street. Wall Street benefits eventually, mm-hmm. but they don't get theirs first. They get theirs last. And maybe not as much. And maybe not as much, but, and rightfully so, because it's about the economy. It right. shouldn't be about Wall Street. Right. Well, those, of, uh, those people, uh, listeners to this show who have listened to um, uh, The Creature of Jekyll Island, the author um, uh, G. Edward Griffin, would understand or, or think they understand at least why your policies have not been espoused. I mean, it certainly sounds like a populist democratic policy almost that, that you would think, you know, if we had a democracy, if we had a, a system of, uh, of governing uh, government for the people, and by the people, then we would see something more like that. But that clearly doesn't seem to be uh, the way the way the world works these days. I wanted to ask you, getting back to this uh, ABC cycle, then, do you think what do you think the probability is that we've seen the highs on the B wave up? Well, we're calling uh, in our daily analysis right now. We believe the B B top is in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's based upon the power behind the uh, recent decline. But I mean. I've been in this business long enough that that could that could morph into a new new high in another month and and so on. But even if it does, um, C is right around the corner. At right, the very latest. Mm-hmm. And at the earliest, it's in. Uh, C has started, and uh, we're in the early stages of it. I tend to think we're in the early stages of it. I tend to think it has started, but I'm not arrogant enough to to say that it absolutely has started, because um, we would have to see prices drop. I think a little bit were further here and a little more violently to to come to that conclusion. Well, you say not arrogantly, and and quite frankly, uh, Robert, that's one of the reasons I enjoy your work because I realize there is a humility to it, and I think anybody that's been in this business long for a long time has to be humble because we nobody knows for sure which way things are going. You're looking at probabilities. My friend and colleague Roger Wiegand and, and Arch Crawford as well, who's been on this show, are all sort of suggesting May and maybe even the end of the year before we see the the major uh, or the top or the beginning of the of the decline, but your your sense is that more than likely, if we haven't seen the top, it's not worth not worth taking a lot of risk trying to gain some more upside. I guess. Yeah, I mean, people can if they think there's another another new high coming over the next two three months, they can try to chase a rally. But I, I got to tell you, the the risk is very high there. There's an awful lot of uh, of, of work that's in uh, technical work that's in that, that suggests this thing is probably the top is in. Um, and, uh, and what we're going to see now are lower highs and lower lows uh, continuously for several years. Uh, there's a lot of risk to suggest that. I mean, I'm looking at um, a weekly moving average convergence divergence indicator, and this, this is just generated. This is a long-term indicator. It's just generated a sell signal, and... Uh, this is not, this is coming from extreme overbought levels. Uh, this is this is not good. I mean, this is the kind of thing you would see uh, with a catastrophic wave decline starting. That's just one example of mm-hmm. uh, supporting evidence to suggest uh, that the uh, may have already started, but it may not have. You know, I mean, 
Well, Robert, when we had you on before, you talked about a couple of different scenarios in the sea wave down, and that uh, sort of the worst case scenario could have taken you to somewhere between zero and a thousand on the Dow. Do you still do you still feel that's a possibility? Yeah, in fact, I think that possibility has increased in probability. Uh, unfortunately, so more than likely, you'd say more than a fifty percent likelihood. Yeah, I'd say so because uh, what happened is. Uh, we had three scenarios. One of them, the best one, was a triangle, mm-hmm. where uh, we had, if that's the case, we, then the March lows are the lows. But um, what happened is this, this top, if it's, if it's in now, it's too low for that triangle pattern. The top is not high enough. Mm-hmm. We would have had to see the dial go to 12,000 and the uh, S&P probably close to 1,200 for the triangle scenario to... So that pattern to be um, alive and kicking and well. And the fact we've had such a sharp turn down in 2010, and our, 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 death, our uh, decade work shows that every year that's ended in a zero has seen massive declines uh, since the 1900s, early 1900s. So the fact that 2010 is off to an awful start uh, suggests if B is in, um, and we're not going to get to that 12,000 level on the Dow. The triangle, the best-case scenario, is not happening. Mm-hmm. That leaves us with two other scenarios. One is the zigzag, which takes the Dow all the way down as close to 0,000 to a zero area. And that's also supported by those head and shoulders top patterns I talked about worldwide and may, many major uh, countries' markets. And then uh, the other scenario would be a flat, and that also allows for substantially lower... Uh, prices in the Dow than we saw back in March. Um, that would scenario would would see the Dow down probably in the uh, four to three thousand to four thousand area uh, within the next three to four years. Either way, uh, it looks like a like a catastrophic uh, event, and you've called it a, a catastrophic nation changing event to correct the the bull market that started in seventeen eighteen. I mean, this sounds very much like Robert Prechter's view of the world, and Robert looking at a six hundred Dow. I mean that. You guys seem to be on the same page here on this thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, that does sound that way. It's, I mean, you look at these charts and, you know, you, you've seen how many times that they've been accurately forecasting future prices uh, before, and you see what they're saying now, and you just have to respect it. You have to say there's some real, real danger here. Well, how bad do you think this thing could get? Let's say we see something catastrophic like that, even the 4,000, 5,000 Dow. Do you think there's prospects for some sort of civil disorder, infrastructure breakdown? What sort of thing? I mean, it's not that, you know, Dennis Gartman one time, I was on a panel discussion, he said, the trouble with you gold bugs is you all want to see the world go to hell so you can get rich. <laughs> Robert, I know that's not you. I know that's not me. That really made me angry because, I mean, I'm looking at the world the way I'm looking at it because I believe policies have caused this kind of problems. And policies, as, as Robert Prechter points out, come about as a result of, societal trends and societal pressures on our on our political leaders but how could this thing really get really get ugly i guess yeah i mean you saw you know i call them the gang of five in the supreme court that just uh passed uh let you know uh basically ruled on on uh allowing uh, corporations now to spend any amount of money they want to uh, on your future on future elections advertisements mm-hmm. i mean that's insane I mean, there goes our democratic process. The right. electro- election process has now been destroyed. 
Because so Goldman Sachs can buy anything they want now. There's no limit yeah. to what they can spend. Yep, put it behind any candidate they want to, uh, for president, for Congress, for Senate, for whatever, and we're going to have Goldman Sachs deciding who's, who's running our country. Well, that's basically the end of democracy here. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's happened. It just happened a few weeks ago. And, you know, everybody says, oh, it's a free speech decision. Baloney. It's the definition of who a person is. Right. And four justices, to their credit, voted against this decision. Five voted for it. It was a very close vote. Mm. And, and it was, it was, it's just an example of corporations are now going to be able to run this country like never before. We always used to have the election process, the voter process, as a check and, check and balance. We just lost it. And I don't know what that does to the future of this country, but it ties in with what these charts are saying. This is gonna, there's going to be major changes here. Yeah. And it's, it's a little frightening. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, you, you're seeing uh, senators, you know, resigning. Yep. seems like every other day because uh, mm-hmm. they don't like the political process now. Right. It's going to get worse. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. We, we don't want that to happen, but we try to assess the world as we can see it uh, objectively, as we can view it as objectively as possible. That's what we try to do on this show. And, uh, you know, I think it's better to be prepared than, than not to be prepared going forward. So, uh, Robert, we're just about out of time here, but um, could you tell our listeners again where they can learn more about your, about your, your work? And also I think you're providing some, perhaps some, low-priced uh, initial uh, introductory offer to your letter, perhaps? Yeah, we have a free 30-day uh, trial subscription at uh, www.technicalindicatorindex.com. It gives people uh, carte blanche. They can check anything out we have. We have a lot of different interesting things. We have a model conservative investment portfolio. We have uh, daily newsletters, a weekend expanded newsletter. We do international markets. Weekly, on every weekend we do a daily Australia report a daily U.S. report. We try to be proactive, like you said, Jay. You know, we're not here hoping the world will end. We have suggested policies that we think will be successful in turning things around and helping the, our country, and we're very patriotic here. And it's just unfortunate that uh, what's happening is happening. So it would be technicalindicatorindex.com. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Robert, again for sharing your time. I know it's very valuable with us. And, folks, I do read Robert's work every day and try a a free trial subscription, for goodness sakes, give that a try. I think you're going to like it and probably going to want to want to subscribe if you're a, a frequent investor in the markets. And even if you're not, you need to know, try to have a sense of what's going on in the world. And I think Robert provides some, some good insights that are a lot different than you're going to catch on the mainstream media. Well, we're going to be right back. We're going to go to commercial break now. We're going to come right back with Dr. Susan Zentner, a good friend of mine who has put together some ideas and some products that we think could be very, very helpful in the event that some of these more dire forecasts do come to pass. We hope and pray they do not, but in the event they do, uh, I think it's better to plan for the future and to be ready for that kind of thing than not to be. So we'll be right back with Dr. Suzanne Zetner. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, those of you who were with us the last half hour heard Dr. Robert McHugh uh, talk about his uh, forecast. Uh, he thinks it's more than likely that we are going to see a major, major decline in the equity markets, sort of the best scenario he sees is a four or 5,000 on the Dow and thinks it's more likely that we'll see something closer to Robert Prechter's views of something around something between zero and a 1,000 on the Dow. And that sounds so ridiculous that most people are going to just laugh it off and, and think that can't happen. But people who look at history realize that cycles, major cycles happen. Major superpowers have their days in the sun and then they decline. And so to to try to look at uh, the world through the sort of you know contemporary viewpoint without taking a step back and looking at history and what's gone on through centuries, I think would be sort of foolhardy. We've uh, you know we're talking about the potential for some very very major problems, and we hope they don't happen. We hope and pray they don't happen. Uh, but I think it makes a lot of sense to be prepared for the worst. And some people say prepare for, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. 
Um, I'm very pleased to have Dr. Suzanne Zettner with me. Um, Suzanne is a professor, educator, professional educator, I should say, who has been hugely successful in that endeavor, but she is also a lady of action, so she does not only want to teach people how to prepare, but also to help them uh, live their lives in a way that will make their lives meaningful and also um, survive the difficult times that she thinks is, is possible. Suzanne, I've known now for a couple of years, she's certainly not an alarmist. She is a person that walks, has her feet on the ground, that's for sure, uh, a former uh, athlete and still pretty athletic. Uh, she's a, a lady, though, who is very real and very very much dedicated to helping other people. And one of her favorite quotes comes from Harry Wong, who says, uh, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Nobody knows what the future holds, but I believe it's hard to argue against Mr. Wong's statement, especially given the obvious financial problems. I mean, even the mainstream is now talking about uh, a depression. Uh, Stephen Roach, I heard this morning on Bloomberg, was talking about how we're in big trouble going forward. The global economy is in big trouble. Uh, we heard Brian Rich talk in the first uh, hour of this show about how the global economy needs to be rebalanced, how the United States really has to start, stop consuming, has to, has to really tighten its belt, has to really start living frugally again, has to start taking life seriously and producing things. Uh, and, uh, and so I think even under the best of circumstances, we're looking at a situation that is not going to be as easy as it's been for a number of years in the past. So that said, I want to welcome uh, Dr. Suzanne Zentner. Uh, as I said, she is an educator and an entrepreneur, uh, who is uh, really applying her teaching skills now to helping people prepare for the future. Welcome, Suzanne, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hi, Jay. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, what made you spend so much time and energy establishing this new, this new project that you're involved in? And I first perhaps should tell our listeners that uh, it's called All-in-One Preparedness, and um, they can learn more about your work at, uh, what is the website, allinonepreparedness.com, is that it? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so what made you spend so much time and energy? I know because you're a professional educator, uh, but you really are interested in this in this field. Why have you uh, devoted um, a lot of effort in this regard? Well, I don't know that I have a real easy answer for that, Jay, but I guess it was just sort of a strange feeling I had. I owned a, a, a little bit of rental property back in, well, about 20 years' worth, and uh started to feel very uneasy about things, people being more and more late with rent and watching. I'm, I'm not an economist by any stretch, but I definitely consider myself a student of the marketplace and just look around and listen to friends and talk about how much debt they have and leverage this to buy that. And it just felt like a system that was unsustainable. And um, as it turned out, there was a fairly large hiccup that we all lived through um, that was rather profound, and I, I think it also it just speaks to the way that the system is put together so very weakly, um, so weak, and has the vulnerabilities that, that we saw that this is a real domino effect if, if things do happen. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's better if we don't, if we fail to plan, we you plan to fail. I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense, doesn't it? It does. I mean, there's just, that's just good for day-to-day life and our, uh-huh. our work um, at a daily level, we just need to be very thoughtful in what we're doing and not just plan for the immediate moment. And um, 
We teach teachers that with lesson planning and trying to think of all the options that might happen during the course of a delivery of a lesson. And, and that's really, I guess, my interest in this, in this business is this isn't a catastrophic um, business plan model, but rather you can plan for a three-day uh, electrical outage to uh, a several-year issue that, that certain people that I've been speaking with have concerns about. Mm-hmm. So we're not we're not necessarily you're not necessarily buying the notion uh, that we're going to see something really catastrophic, although we may. But but it's sort of you know just for everyday needs, and you never know, right? I mean, we've had we have natural calamities that occur on a on a fairly regular basis, not to most of us, but to people unexpectedly here and there. So to be prepared for for what for food, for water, for electricity, what is it that you are doing? Yes, um, th- this is a this is a business that offers um, under one roof. Because when I started looking into these these products to sort of prepare myself and my family, I realized, my gosh, I've got to go to so many different places to get all these things. And isn't there just a a one roof that you could shop under that has you know no frills? I'm not into big flashy marketing, and that was uh, economically feasible for the average person to sort of be thoughtful in planning for the future. And this is for people from small hunting weekend trips to RV trips to ultra-athletes who are out on long multi-day hikes to people who are the preppers who are looking at uh, a complete economic collapse. So this is, a, this is a business where people can shop all under one roof for food and, and water filters and cookbooks and shortwave radios and anything that a person would need to um, live in a in an unusual situation or a, an atypical situation than we live in today. Okay, well, I'm familiar somewhat with your food products. In fact, the other day, Mrs. Taylor and I tried your uh, beef stroganoff and mashed potatoes, and I, I mean, out of a can, I couldn't believe how good they were. I mean, they tasted almost like they were cooked from scratch. Um, what about? Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your products? Uh, what products? Do you have? I mean, I'm familiar with those. I saw we have some applesauce. We had some some mountain stew or something like that. I haven't tried, haven't had the time to try all of them yet, but surprisingly good. Um, what what is the cost of these items? Well, the cost really ranges. I think if people were to to put a pencil to this these products, they'll find that this is really not a large difference. In some cases, even cheaper than regular groceries. But the real unique twist is this is um, a very superior canning technique, and that's part of, I guess, being an educator is you have hyper-research things, and the, the company that I've been working with, they are just, they are true people. This is non-corporate. This is a family institution that prides themselves on uh, extremely high-quality foods, and so this is all nitrogen-packed in vacuum-sealed, heavy-duty, um, BPA-free U.S. steel cans that are double-lined with enamel for any leaching and other issues that and rusting that other companies uh, don't go to those extremes for. So I was just so unduly impressed with with their approach that there was no question in my mind who I wanted to to represent. And these are very nutrient dense foods with a time tested shelf life of 27 years. Wow. What is BPO free? What does that mean? BPA. Um, that's a chemical that has, um, in fact, very recently in, in 2008 and even in 2010, there have been lots of health concerns raised with BPA, which is essentially found in 
your typical grocery, most, unless they're labeled BPA-free, most cans in the grocery store have this inside the can, and it's been linked to all sorts of cancers and reproductive system problems. Mm. And um, even the FDA in 2010, um, there was some further concern raised regarding fetuses and infants and young children um, ingesting the BPA substance from cans. So all of our products are BPA-free. Interesting. So the secret here, uh, you said a 27-year life is the the sealing, I guess, and, and keeping the oxygen out. Is that is that the key? Well, yeah, yes. The, the key always is keeping oxygen out of these products, but but also the the canning techniques that's used and the cans themselves. Um, you know, you can look at a particular product, but the canning of that product is is just not, if not more critical than the product itself. So our products are, are very, very well. Uh, the, the, the line that these are processed on is um, pristine. You can eat off the factory floor type of thing. I mean, I'm not suggesting you would, but <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's just an extremely well-run company, and the, the quality of the product is just simply unparalleled. You, um, you you told me that um, you know when I told you I don't have a an ideal place to store my food. Um, in fact, I have to keep it in a garage, uh, and I think the 27 year life relies on you storing it someplace that is ideal. Could you explain the ideal storage place, and then what sort of life expectancy might the food have if you have to store it, say, in a garage that's not uh, temperature controlled? Sure. Well, the ideal is kind of a cool, dry area, basement, or um, several folks that I've been working with are just, just put them in their closet. What's amazing about dehydrated food is the space that it takes up is so small, uh, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. relative to freeze-dried and other products. So you're talking about a year's worth of food supply for two people about the size of a normal refrigerator in your kitchen. Wow. And um, so the shelf life in an ideal situation would be is 27 years currently, and I expect that to increase as time goes on um, because they test every year to see how things hold up. But if it's in a compromised position or a location like a garage, then you, it's, you can cut that in half generally mm-hmm. depending on the temperature extremes. So you still have 12, 13 years or so, 14 yes. years. Mm-hmm. And the uh, what once you unseal these packs, uh, you still have what sort of life expectancy? Because uh, you know you, basically it's like a powder or something like that. Or you know the stroganoff was a powder, and then we had noodles. And you you know you mix the powder in the water, and then the noodles, and and that's all there is to it. And it's just incredibly tasty. I couldn't get over how good it was, but it was such a small small area, of course, that it required. But um, how long can now that we've opened our stroganoff? And our mashed potatoes, how long can Mrs. Taylor and I expect to use those? I mean, we just used a very small portion of that. And, you know, we've got many, many more meals left from from these two little cans. So how long of shelf life will those have now that we've opened the cans? Well, once you open a can and you put the plastic lid on that, that in most orders, those, those come right with it depending on the order size, but you can always order the lids. They're very, very inexpensive. Um, once they're, if you kept, keep them sealed in your pantry, they're still good for up to a year, with the exception of the milk and eggs, which is a shelf life of 8 to 10 months after mm-hmm. opening them. Mm-hmm. But still exceptionally long shelf life, and that's the, the eco-friendly side of these products is there just is no waste. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, so let's suppose that we have a power outage or whatever, um, and we're not able to get electricity for a few days or whatever. Uh, we can't get to the supermarkets to buy our, our groceries, and we have to start using these canned products. Um, I guess if you've got milk, you if you've got powdered milk, you can just mix it with water, and you've got milk. Huh? Or you're, in other words, you don't have to have your milk refrigerated. You can you can your this material will this food will last for quite a while. That's true. Yes. Um, what? How much do you think an average? Let's say an average family of four. What would they need to spend to adequately? Uh, supply themselves for an emergency for, say, what, six months or something like that, or three months, let's say? Or, or what? It, take pick any time you, you prefer. Uh, how much is it going to cost for a family of two or a family of four to, um, uh, to stock their shelves with, let's just talk food now and, and not energy and other, other possible needs? Well, on the website, there are a number of ways that you can, you can determine. We, we sort of project out, for example, you can look at a, a family unit, it's actually called the family unit, for four people for one year, or obviously it would be two people for two years, mm-hmm. um, that's under $3,000. Mm. And there's, there's add-on units you can add to that, but even this, the smallest three-month supply, one person for three months is $359. So I guess what you're saying is that may not be a lot more or a lot different than what you'd spend going to the grocery store these days. Well, I would challenge people to, to I mean, every, everybody sort of consumes different levels, but I think it would be worth the, the comparison for people to look at. I know for myself it's, it's very economical. Let's talk about the quality of the food a little bit, if you don't mind. I mean, it's, um, if I heard you say that it's quite nutritional. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of thought. I mean, it's not just calories for the sake of keeping people's hearts beating. It's, it's actually food that's, that's nutritionally uh, sound, is that right? Yes, there's great attention is, is made in the canning process to retain all of the original nutrient composition that's in the food uh, before it's dehydrated. And um, it's, it's remarkable when you, when you look at these cans, when you open it up, there's no color compromise, there's no taste compromise, mm. there's no texture compromise in the, in the 27 years that they have time-tested these foods. So it's all vegetarian-based, and all of the ingredients are very prominently displayed on the side of containers. So those with wheat-free allergies, for example, have the ability to buy certain products, and there's dairy-free products. Um, but otherwise, all of the ingredients are, are very clearly listed there, and we're very sensitive to that. These are not organic products, but they're as close to organic as, as we can get in a dehydrated form. So, again, there's great attention to the quality of this food. Suzanne, we only have a couple of minutes. I want to propose a hypothetical question to you. Let's say that there is only a 5% probability of anything really bad happening, you know, the kind of cataclysmic thing that Dr. McHugh is talking about, Robert Prechter and others on this show, and a 95% likelihood that life will go on as usual. Wouldn't I be wasting my money to go out and buy all-in-one products, or are you saying no because I'm not going to spend any more than I would spend at the grocery store anyway? Well, I would say that, Jay, this isn't a big um, difference economically for folks, but I also think that just even in the last few years, we've just been full of unexpected um, examples of, of situations that have put us in, in an op, 
a position where we would want to consider something like this, from the tsunami to earthquakes and forest fires. Mm-hmm. And then we have had predicted disasters like the economic meltdowns and the Katrinas and the terrorist attacks. It's, um, I guess, in my opinion, there's just there's so many insurance plans that, that we all have in our personal lives, and this is just another insurance plan of sorts. So I, I, I would suggest it's a, it's a good idea. You don't have to do several years worth of storage, but maybe a, maybe a week or a month or whatever feels comfortable to people. You offer a one-on-one personal discussion to answer people's questions. I'm not quite sure how you can really do that or your staff can do that, but could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? And then in closing, could you just tell them again your website and how people can learn more about your work? Absolutely. Well, the the most enjoyable aspect of the, of this is obviously is meeting people, and I, I very much enjoy people and, and have met some very good friends through this whole process. And so I, I have a lot of time that I devote to this and truly, truly want to just help other folks get a little better education on this. Whether or not they buy anything, that's perfectly fine. This is a low-pressure, no-frills little endeavor. So um, be happy to help anyone who has just general questions or wants to delve into this more detailed at um, the website is www.allinonepreparedness.com. And no hyphens in between those words. It's just one word, allinonepreparedness.com, right? That's correct. Okay. Well, folks, I've known Susan for well over a year or so, and I can tell you that she is that kind of a person, not the high-pressured salesperson. In fact, not that much of a of a marketing person in a, in a way. I think she's uh, she's not going to try to pressure you to do anything, but... She is a very sincere person. I would suggest you take a look at her work and consider consider her advice. Uh, I certainly have, and I think you should do the same. Well, that's about all the time we have this week. I want to, again, remind you that you can take advantage of Chen Lin's special offer for $39 for one month, Roger Wiegand's Trader Tracks for $49, my three-month letter. Uh, you can get a trial for $59. Uh, next week we're going to have John Williams, He's an inflationist. He's going to give you the opposite view of what Brian uh, Rich gave you earlier today. Uh, so you'll want to hear what John Williams has to say in terms of what the real economic numbers are, not necessarily the ones that you're getting on CNBC and the like. I also, in closing, I want to thank our staff at Voice America, Tacey Trump. She's a senior executive producer, Ruben Colombe, our operations manager, Justin Jackman, who's my engineer for making this show possible logistically possible. And again, I want to thank each of you for listening. And so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point.